Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, today we are going to talk about another book. The book is titled "The Political Right and Equality: Turning Back the Tide of Egalitarian Modernity." And to talk about it, we have the author of the book, Matthew McManus, with us. Matt, welcome back. Yeah, nice to see you again, man. Yeah, you know what the funny thing Happy is. Happy New Year, uh, by the way. Happy New Year to you too. And uh, you know, funny thing is that you've been on the podcast. I think at least four or five times. We've mm-hmm. never met. <laughs> We've never met. One day. <laughs> yeah, one well, day. Well, you know, that's the world that we live in today, especially fucking post-COVID, man. Like, honestly, the number of people who I've had, like, pretty long-standing relationships with who I've never actually seen personally is astonishingly high at this point. Yeah. And 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 for a person who reads you so regularly, that is me here, I've actually read, I, I think this is the third book of yours that I've read. I think it really? is the third book. Yeah, yeah. It is the third book I've read. I, I obviously, I read most of your essays i read them regularly and and you know it's just that when you were in toronto i was not there or we couldn't you know fix the time to meet up but definitely next the, this year if i come uh, we'll, we'll figure something out but all right first of all congratulations on the book i really had a good time reading uh, as Thank always you. Uh, 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 you did not disappoint me because i always like to read theoretical uh, st- work and and i consider you as an author who covers a lot of theory uh, mm-hmm. and if if you find me uh, caricaturing this in a wrong way correct me but i i always fo- found you to be someone who has a lot of patience when it comes to theory and you try to explore theory look at theoretical frameworks and uh, and and you you know you kind of delve deep but but why did you want to now i know you have a history right you've read ben shapiro jordan peterson that's something i appreciate about you you read every single popular author which most people on the right or left don't do they just opine without reading you read and then opine and then you come from your perspective now why did you make this decision to write this book because in a way this book to me is like steel manning the theoretical framework of the the western or the anglo american the colloquialism if i was to use right culture in the west sure uh, well first off like again thanks a lot for having me back it's always a great time chatting with you uh, but uh, there are two main reasons I decided to write this book. Um, the first one uh, is the same reason I decided to write my book on postmodern conservatism. It was that, you know, uh, around 2020, when I got started, you know, Donald Trump, Jair Bolsonaro, a um, variety of other right wing figures, you know, were in power and in office. Uh, and they're really having an impact um, you know, through their COVID policies or their anti-COVID policies, depending. Uh, and I thought that I had more to say uh, about the nature uh, of right wing thought than I had in some of these earlier books. Uh, but the second main reason that I thought this was necessary uh, was people liked my postmodern conservatism book pretty generally. Uh, and they also liked my reviews of people like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson and, you know, Charlie Kirk and all these other figures. But the number one criticism that book got uh, and those reviews got were people said, well, you're kind of dealing with, you know, bargain basement conservatism or the political right or whatever you want to call it, right? You know, you're dealing with, you know, conservatism at its worst, at its dumbest, its most banal, uh, at its, you know, Kellyanne Conaway, you know, we have alternative facts and you have your facts kind of, you know, shtick. Uh, You're not really dealing with, you know, the great and auspicious figures uh, that emerged on the political right uh, that actually have something meaningful uh, or even profound to say. Uh, And every time people made that criticism, you know, I kind of take it in stride. But then I realized that they were right. You know, uh, I didn't actually, uh, you know, deal with a lot of those figures comprehensively, at least in the book on postmodern conservatism. There are gestures there, you know, where I talk about Burke and Oakshot and uh, 
Joseph Demetra and a few others. But I was like, okay, you know, fair enough. That's a criticism people have made. So I'm going to do just what they've asked me to do. Uh, I'm going to write a long book. There's not going to be any, you know, cultural situatedness. There's not going to be any kind of, you know, uh, well, let's diagnose conservatism as a pathology that emerges from this. We're just going to look at the major authors that you know I'm familiar with, at least in the right-wing tradition. Uh, we're going to look at what unites them, uh, and I'm going to respond to their arguments systematically after I explain a bit uh, about what they hold to be true uh, or not true on any given occasion. So that's what this book um, was really about. Now, what I wanted to know is you, you've, you've chosen to pick some authors, whether it's Scruton, Demester... You start with Aristotle. Very mm -hmm. interesting. You start from Aristotle. You go, uh, you build uh, in a very systematized manner. How did you go about picking these writers to cover the spectrum of the Western right-wing thought? Well, that's a good question. Uh, honestly, the original book was going to be quite a bit longer, right? There were a few other people that were going to appear, uh, but then as time went on, uh, I ended up actually reining it back <laughs> just because, you know, page limits and all that stuff. Uh, but the reason that I started with Aristotle uh, is that Aristotle is just, as the book makes out, uh, a profoundly influential figure uh, on the political right. Uh, now, I want to make clear, he is also a profoundly influential figure on the political left and amongst political liberals as well. You know, Aristotle, uh, certainly in the Western canon, uh, is known as uh, the master of those who know, uh, as Dante characterized him, right? And almost everybody can learn something from him. Uh, but there's no doubt that the political right draws very heavily uh, on this view of society that he puts forward in all, writings like The Politics and other works, uh, which is fundamentally hierarchical, right? Uh, so Aristotle denies emphatically this idea that people are natural equals, right? Uh, in fact, he insists quite consistently, right, that people are very transparently unequal, right? Uh, you know, men, particularly, you know, uh, Athenian uh, or, you know, Theban noblemen, uh, have possessed more virtue, more education, more cultivation, right, than women. Uh, and because of this, they have a higher degree of deliberative reason. And that means they should be granted more status, more power, uh, more political agency, uh, certainly than women in most countries, right? Uh, and then Aristotle says, look, some people are just natural slaves, right? They possess no deliberative reason whatsoever. Uh, they really, you know, are only concerned with where their next meal is going to come from. And these people are fit to be natural slaves. Uh, you know, that's their role in society. Society always will need people who are going to, who are going to, take away the garbage and clean up the toilets. So get them to do that, right? Uh, and this view of society as fundamentally oriented by necessary hierarchies uh, that are natural and inexorable was actually the default possession for a position for many Western thinkers for a very long period of time, right? Uh, something that's hard to understand, I think, with the uh, you know after liberal modernity, uh, where many of us are committed to this idea that at least in terms of our rights and before the law, everyone is equal, right? Uh, but then what I point out is, of course, there was a shift that occurred. Uh, why this shift occurred isn't something that I discuss in great detail in the book because it's not its subject. Uh, but you start to see figures like Locke or Hobbes uh, or Jefferson uh, or Kant, you know, emerge that say, no, no, actually, Aristotle is just wrong, right? Uh, Hobbes made this point especially emphatically in his book Leviathan, uh, where he actually singles Aristotle out and says, very few things have ever been written that are as ridiculous as pretty much everything Aristotle has ever written, right? Uh, not subtle, uh, where he says, look, it's very obvious to me, according to Hobbes, that people are actually extremely equal uh, in a state of nature at the very least. Uh, yeah, you know, there are people who have minor uh, differences in intelligence, minor differences in their physical aptitudes, right? Uh, yeah, maybe you can bench 300 pounds, but, and, you know, another person can't do that at all, right? But 300 pounds is nothing, right, uh, compared to, you know, what, you know, an elephant would be able to move. Uh, and what an elephant can move is 
minuscule uh, next to, you know, the kind of weightiness uh, of other things in the universe. Uh, and in terms of, you know, intelligence, yeah, you know, there are a couple of people who might be doing quadratic equations uh, or, you know, higher math uh, and other people who sit there and they watch TV all day. Uh, but who are you to think that's all that impressive, right? Uh, compared to the vast expanse of what is knowable in this world, uh, the knowledge that Albert Einstein happens to have relative to some guy smoking a joint and sitting there watching TV all day is also minuscule, right? So people in a state of nature are extraordinarily equal to one another, right? Uh, so equal, in fact, that he says, the only reason that we foreground and emphasize inequalities between people, according to Hobbes at least, uh, isn't because there's any scientific or rational basis for them, uh, but instead what he calls because of vanity, right? Uh, every man likes to flatter himself to be a little better, uh, if not a lot better than everyone else. Uh, because who doesn't want to feel that way? Uh, and he says, you know, vanity is not some kind of rational predisposition. It's vanity, right? Uh, get over yourself and recognize that, you know, you two are a naked ape. You're going to live 80 years. You're going to go, you know, shit around a little bit in you know, every toilet and you're going to die like everyone else, right? That's life. Uh, and these views eventually become popular enough uh, that they ferment various kinds of revolutionary agitation, you know, particularly in countries like Haiti, France, you know, <clears throat> And of course, the United States. Uh, and this shocks many people in the West, right? Uh, particularly amongst the aristocracy who can't believe uh, that arguments for equality uh, have advanced as far as they have. Uh, and this is what really contributes to the emergence of what I call the modern conservative movement, starting with figures like Edmund Burke and Joseph de Maistre, which is why I chose them uh, to kind of open the book, if you will. Uh, and then beyond that, right, the reason I chose the figures that I did uh, was mostly to be representative of a wide swath of different views, you know, social conservatism, Nietzscheanism, the far right, um, American conservatism, Anglo-conservatism, French conservatism. There's a lot more that I could cho have chosen, obviously, right, uh, depending on space. Uh, but I try to provide a sense of the diversity of right-wing thought to the extent that I could do that in, uh, you know, 300 pages or so. So... At the core of this book, in fact, I want to start by reading the very second page on your introduction, where it's written, the political, the political right is simply more comfortable with the idea that people are unequal and so should be treated unequally. There are more and less extreme forms to this idea with the most moderate forms of ordered liberty conservatism overlapping closely with right-wing variants of liberalism. However, as I've already discussed elsewhere, the more liberals become convinced that moral equality must entail high levels of material parity, the more likely they are to affiliate with socialist ideals. Because I think ultimately the idea of moral equality necessitates securing for all individuals a comparable, though not equal, set of capabilities needed to live a good life. Liberals should gradually come to gravitate more towards these progressive positions. Now, uh, from... From where, what I have studied, listen, I my life I've kind of divided in Indian and Western thought. So mm -hmm. I, I kind of dabble in both. So my time gets divided in both. But from what I have understood, it, whether it was Locke or a lot of these liberal icons, they were socialists, right? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, so... I'm writing a new book right now, um, The Political Theory of Liberal Socialism, that traces this development, right? Uh, and one of the things that I point out is that early liberals, right, um, so-called, you know, people like Locke, right, uh, were committed to this idea that people, that in a state of nature, uh, we were all equal. 
with a large number of exceptions that he drew, right? Uh, you know, indigenous people, women, et cetera, et cetera, who might not be quite as equal as everyone else. Uh, but in principle, you know, um, there's this idea of equality in the state of nature for all men at the very least. Uh, but he says, look, you know, um, even though people are all equal in a state of nature, we have, you know, unequal capacities to labor uh, and through our own efforts, right? Certain new kinds of inequalities uh, will emerge, you know, after we, uh, you know, within the state of nature and within civil society. Uh, and these are justifiable, right? Because the earth belongs to the industrious, uh, as Locke famously put it, right? Uh, and this becomes a basis for arguing for various kinds of liberal inequalities, right? Then on a different basis than what you see in the old aristocratic regimes. Uh, and in some ways, these liberal arguments for inequality can be just as if not more pernicious uh, or toxic or unappealing to many people uh, as the older arguments for aristocracy. Because the older arguments for aristocracy, uh, and Don Herzog traces this very nicely in his book, Poisoning the Mind of the Lower Orders, uh, had this kind of noblesse oblige to them, uh, where people like you know Aristotle or Robert Filmer uh, would say, look, nature has just decided that there is a natural hierarchy uh, you belong at the bottom of it, but that's not your fault, right? Uh, you didn't do anything to lack deliberative reason, right? Uh, you either lack this capacity because, you know, nature has ordained that, uh, or because God has ordained that you're going to be a peasant and that you have a job to do, which is, you know, producing food uh, and resources for the Lord. Uh, and aligned with this was this idea that everyone has their duties, but everyone is also entitled to a certain level of treatment and respect uh, based upon where they fall in the social hierarchy or social pyramid, right? Uh, and the lords, you know, while they possess a great deal of privileges and a great deal of power as a result of their status, you know, whether ascribed to them by nature or by God, uh, they have obligations to the lower orders, which include providing them with protection, not being tyrannical, uh, even offering them a certain level of material well-being or securing a certain level of material well-being for them uh, in the same way, you know, that a good parent tries to tend to his children, right? Uh, and if you want a good example of this, you can just read Robert Filmer's The Patriarcha, right? Uh, where he makes the case that the king is basically just the father writ large, right? Uh, and yeah, the father has more power and can be stern towards his children at points, but he's still a father figure, right? He loves them and he cares for them and he tends to them uh, graciously, right? Uh, by contrast, what you see emerging in the liberal era certainly with what I call classical or possessive individualism, is this idea that, look, every person rises or falls according to their own merits. Uh, and if you get to the top, well, that's because you worked harder and you were more talented and you were more capable. Uh, so you owe nothing to anyone at the bottom because you got to where you were for your own efforts. Uh, and this is a one from a kind of Habesian standpoint, uh, obviously very self-flattering, but very few of us are immune uh, to the potency uh, of this kind of self-flattery, right? Uh, but we, we often miss uh, is how this can generate extraordinarily antisocial dispositions. Uh, since, of course, if I feel that I've made it to the top through my own efforts and I owe nothing to anyone around me, then, of course, you know, I'm going to adopt this egoistic kind of attitude uh, with regard to my own life. Uh, but far more important than even how this disposition impacts our society is the way how the way the inverse uh, impacts our society, because people forget that, you know, when the lower orders are made to internalize these views, so-called, uh, the end result is them feeling, look, if you didn't make it to the top, that's because you're lazy or talentless uh, or you just couldn't cut it. Uh, you might have been able to make it if you're good enough, but you're not, right? So if you're at the bottom rung of society, 
unlike what you would see, for instance, in the medieval era, you can't blame that on bad luck uh, or tyranny uh, or nature just running its course. Uh, it's because you tried, you failed, and in Donald Trump's parlance, you're a loser, right? Uh, and a loser doesn't get anything. Uh, they lose, right? Uh, and this is extraordinarily harsh in terms of its implications for how people should think about themselves in these kinds of possessive liberal societies. Uh, but what I point out in my new book is starting especially in the late 18th century, many liberal icons become increasingly dissatisfied uh, with these kind of anti-egalitarian implications uh, of their own school of thought or their own thought tradition. Uh, so you start to see people like Mary Wollstonecraft and Thomas Paine uh, make the argument that actually, well, for that matter, Adam Smith, uh, Adam Smith was very resolute on this as well, saying, look, uh, this tendency of the rich to be self-flattering uh, and the tendency of society to flatter the rich uh, deeply perverts our moral sentiments, uh, to use Smith's term, right? Uh, and Mary Wollstonecraft is even more efficacious about this, where she says, uh, there is nothing that is more destructive and disintegrationist uh, of moral virtue uh, and individualism in our society than inequities in private property. Uh, because what this leads people to do is to become covetous, vain, uh, stupid, and flat uh, because they devote their time to who has the nicest car, right? Uh, or who has the nicest house or who has the most money in their bank account. Uh, all these things that are extraordinarily fetishistic in their orientation uh, and ultimately unimportant relative to, you know, what is genuinely an important task, which is cultivating moral virtue, expanding ourselves, and developing our higher human capacities, uh, which entail engaging with other people uh, rather than just engaging in acquisition, right? Uh, and Thomas Paine uh, was probably the first person to systematize this, uh, where he argues, look, it is very much the case that Locke is right, that private property, for instance, uh, emerges from people's labor, right? Uh, and this is important, he says, because obviously we want to undermine the old aristocratic argument uh, that property relationships are just set by God or by nature, right? Uh, which is, of course, what the old aristocracy depended on. Uh, but then Paine adds a further twist to this and says, yes, it is true that property emerges in part by labor, but it's also eminently a social phenomenon. Uh, if you do not have other people and a state, uh, or at least a community, that recognizes your entitlement to property and defends that right to property, uh, then you don't have a right to property. Uh, and because property, according to Paine, is a social phenomena, that means everyone who has property from a liberal standpoint owes the rest of society and indeed future generations a, a debt uh, to, for maintaining it, a very high debt for that matter. Uh, and from this, Paine extrapolates a very, very substantive argument for uh, social welfareism for the first time, uh, arguing that the rich in particular, since they gain more from the protection of private property, owe a higher debt than everyone else. Uh, to society, uh, and that the money that should be accrued from the, the collection of this debt uh, should be used to provision for the poor, the aged, uh, women and children in particular. Now, this leads me to a fundamental question, which is at the heart of your book, in my opinion. So what what is equality now? That, that matters a lot. Mm -hmm. Because as you have pointed out over here also, whether we talk about the Aristotle, uh, the Aristotelians, I mean, even the Greeks had the three-tier societal system. You know, pe most mm -hmm. people don't know that, that, you know, the people at the bottom of the tier were not really, you know, having a good time. And and as far as I have read uh, the Plato's Republic, uh, oh, yeah. the upward mobility was not that easy. I know people uh, uh, 
would say no it's not explicitly stated well uh, it is not implicitly stated that they can move up either so <clears throat> it's it's up for uh, grabs or as you in your book rightfully point out right john stuart mill while he was a liberal socialist but he had a horrible opinion of my people for oh, in yes. particular of my people so you know these people were uh, it's very interesting now michael shermer has a uh, has the concept where he calls about the moral arc of society right or peter singer a great philosopher australian philosopher peter singer talks about the moral arc in society how century after century our 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 uh moral arc is expanding and basically we whatever these uh, ideals that we stand up for are they they pretty much remain the same it's just that we increase the number of people that we want to apply it to like the greeks were like you last rightfully said nasty towards women uh, i could point out to some very uh, pathetic hindu scriptures uh, the smriti texts that are nasty to women interestingly the vedas are not but uh, the smritis are and uh, which is good for the hindus they can reject all the smritis according to the religion mm-hmm. but the point is that women were uh, you know for example a manusmriti might say oh a woman's testimony cannot be taken seriously because they are fickle by nature mm-hmm. this is literally the the thing and it's not like the bible doesn't say that or the quran doesn't say that oh, no. all these texts say all these kinds of weird nasty things the greeks say these things aristotle has said the most but at the fundamental level the discussion has to be about what is equality per se and this is where today's battle lines are drawn right this discussion between equity and equality now i'm not saying you have persisted about equity because in your book you do talk about that <clears throat> that fine uh, difference between the two but but how does one attain like if i was to ask you what is equality then is mm-hmm. equality just an equality of opportunity like clearly people like you and i who are pro affirmative action or uh, pro in my case i'm pro reservations for a certain section of society uh so we how, how do we define or and even in your case and my case definitely we might have differences of opinion on on the notion of equality so maybe we can spend some time because at the core of your book is equality now what is equality then yeah it's a great question uh, and it's something again that i'm dedicating more time to uh, in my recent book on liberal socialism uh, but uh, very briefly right uh, the argument that people are not fundamentally unequal uh, that they are moral equals uh by nature uh, or as ordained by god uh, has quite deep roots uh, although it only became widely popularized as i mentioned at least in the west in the um 17th century in particular uh but you can trace its origins back to theravada buddhism for example right uh so many of you probably know uh the great hindu emperor uh, ashoka right uh who was one of the first to argue for the fundamental equality between different religious groups uh in particular uh and advocated for a pacific kind of dialogue between them uh now part of this was motivated of course by strategic considerations because he ruled over a, gra- a vast you know polyethnic polyreligious empire uh but you know drawing inspiration from these kind of buddhist precepts you know he's really making an argument i would argue for inequality for equality of rights uh at least within a political context uh in the western world i would argue that 
notions of human equality really begin to emerge with the Stoic tradition. Uh, this is a point Martha Nussbaum makes uh, in her recent book on cosmopolitanism, uh, where she says, you know, look, we can read Seneca, for example, uh, writing at the height of the Roman Empire. Uh, and Seneca will say, obviously, it's the case that the emperor uh, enjoys a lot more political rights than the slave. Uh, but the reality is that any sensible person will recognize that the emperor and the slave are both human beings, uh, tragically, because they are both earmarked for the same place, right? You know, Emperor, you know, Augustus is going to wind up in the grave, you know, turning to dust uh, the same way that his servant, you know, who served him wine uh, every day is going to. Uh, and Seneca argues that this is morose, obviously. Uh, but it should generate a sense of compassion between people because we recognize that there's a certain kind of equality between human beings uh, since we all live and die uh, in more or less the same kind of way. right? Uh, and then, of course, when you get to the liberal epoch, uh, there are a variety of different arguments put forward, uh, inspired in many ways by Christian thought um, for why it is that people are equals. And we don't need to get into... Christian arguments for equality, uh, which are complicated, but, you know, tend to relate back to this idea that all people are equal before the throne of God. Uh, so, you know, a couple of the liberal arguments that are more prominent, uh, there are, I would argue, largely three uh, arguments that liberals have put forward for equality. Uh, the first one uh, that you start to see emerging with people like Locke is this idea that in a state of nature, uh, people are more or less equal in terms of their natural rights. Uh, and this is an argument, again, he makes quite explicit in the Second Treatise of Government, uh, although, again, he subjects it to quite a few qualifications and other Lockeans who subject that to quite a few qualifications. Right uh, Now, this isn't a particularly robust argument for social or material equality, uh, at least at first, because, again, I can sit there and say, uh, you have an equal right to try to acquire property relative to me, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to wind up with the same degrees of property uh, at the end of a laboring process, for example. Uh, but at the very least, you know, we have certain kind of fundamental rights that we share in common. Then starting in the 18th century, uh, you start to see a variety of other arguments that are put forward uh, for equality. Uh, one of the most famous uh, that, for instance, Peter Singer, who you mentioned before, uh, that becomes, you know, major school of thought is, of course, uh, the utilitarian argument for equality. Uh, so people like Jeremy Bentham uh, and later John Stuart Mills will make this argument, and of course Peter Singer, uh, that look, the relevant moral metric for deciding whether somebody should be worthy uh, of consideration uh, for other interests uh, is whether they experience pleasure or pain. Uh, and Bentham argued pretty convincingly, I would say, uh, that this has radically egalitarian implications because once you say that, look, the only reason the, why we have to take consideration of your interests is because you experience pleasure or pain. Uh, well, all people experience pleasure or pain, right? Uh, and not just all people, but Bentham was one of the first to say uh, even animals uh, need to be taken into consideration in our philosophic uh, calculus because animals also experience pleasure or pain. Uh, and in his famous dictum, uh, Considering this rationally means that we try to maximize the greatest happiness for the greatest number, uh, but each person, uh, when calculating how to secure the greatest happiness for the, great, so the greatest number, uh, counts as one and no more than one. Uh, and this obviously has, again, radically egalitarian social connotations, uh, since Bentham, you know, reformer that he was, uh, says, look, many people in our society have not counted as one. They've counted as two or three, uh, or in some cases, if you're a king or an aristocrat, a thousand. Uh, and other people have counted for 0.5 uh, or not, next to nothing, right? Uh, and he says, this is entirely wrong and baseless, right? Uh, why should we prioritize the happiness of a lord living in his castle uh, over the beggar in the streets? 
Uh, doesn't the beggar on the streets experience pay, pleasure or pain just the same as the Lord? Why is are his interests uh, not accorded equal weight in the felicitic calculus? Uh, now, there are a lot of different permutations this idea goes through, obviously, and utilitarianism is an extraordinarily rich and complicated tradition. Uh, but that's the basic insight for why equality matters from a utilitarian standpoint. Uh, and the last liberal tradition, and the one that I identify most closely with, uh, is a kind of deontological tradition, uh, which holds that fundamentally uh, people possess equal worth uh, from a kind of um, transcendental uh, standpoint. Uh, and this lies in the fact that human beings possess a degree of rationality uh, that allows them to pursue various life plans. Uh, and from a moral standpoint, it is as important that your life goes well as that my life goes well. Uh, and to the extent that the state does not prioritize your life going well uh, as much as it prioritizes my life going well, uh, it is treating us in a way that infringes our dignity, right, uh, in a certain kind of way, uh, or doesn't pay us equal respect, uh, if you want to use Dworkin's term. Uh, now, again, there are a lot of complex permutations of this, right? So Dworkin would frame his kind of deontic position in terms of equal respect uh, for your life going well. Uh, Kant would frame it in terms of, you know, the fundamental rational core uh, of your being, which gives you a dignity that places you beyond price. Uh, but all these kind of deontic arguments are centered on this idea that people are fundamentally moral equals, uh, and it is important uh, that everyone's life goes well, uh, rather than just, you know, a select few's life going well. Now, this is where the problems arise. So you use these words in the end that everyone's life goes well. Now, how do we measure whether someone's life is going well or not, which is where the problem at the disagreements are not in anything until you said everyone's life goes well. Because, for example, somebody might consider uh, being a billionaire as life going well. Someone like me would consider having a decent life with some uh, uh, money, you know, as a life well spent. Uh, if you're Socrates, just ideation and having Socratic dialogues with someone with a little bit of food and a share, you know, place to sleep is a life spent well. You know, what What was the famous line of Socrates? An unexamined life is uh, a worthless one, right? That's what Socrates yeah. said. So how, how does in, because at the end of the day, the debate is not about whether we want humanity to flourish or not. I don't believe that whether it's uh, the liberal tradition, whether it's uh, a, a, a more conservative tradition, which is coming from a very religious or a Christian perspective, or whether it's a modern day socialist, that where I don't doubt the intentions of any side. The problem is how do we get to the goal? And how do we, because the devil lies in the details, because of course. you, uh, uh, what, what, what is that wellness then? Well, how, what is being, being good enough? That's a very good question. And again, uh, the liberal tradition has a lot of internal diversity uh, on exactly these kinds of questions, right? Uh, but one of the things that liberals share in common uh, is our conviction that, look, uh, the individual in many ways uh, is the one best situated to decide how his or her or their uh, life can be well lived, right? Uh, which isn't to say that it's entirely relative, because clearly some lifestyles uh, are more conducive to people's flourishing than others. Uh, but every liberal resists the idea that the state or social institutions uh, should weigh very heavily 
on the kind of choices that you're going to make about how your life is going to go well. Uh, and I think this is because all liberals share Mills's conviction uh, that people are fundamentally quite different uh, in many ways, right? So uh, you and I might enjoy spending a great deal of our time having conversations just like this, right? You know, kind of latter-day Socratic dialogues about first principles. And, you know, we'll dedicate our time to doing that because that's something that's enjoyable and conducive. Uh, and also, like you said, maybe we can make a little bit of money off of it, sell a few books, get a few more listeners, you're signing up for Patreon, uh, and that's all well and good. Uh, other people would find this boring as shit, frankly. You know what I mean? They'd sit there and be like, I would rather spend my time doing almost anything else uh, other than, you know, listening to Another, you know, long rambling thing about utilitarianism and deontology. Uh, I want to watch, you know, a soccer game or a football game or spend time with my family. Uh, and liberals would say that within very broad parameters, uh, all these kinds of lifestyles should be acceptable, right? Uh, or at least permitted uh, in a state context. Uh, now, of course, there have to be limitations uh, that are set by rational forms of analyses, right? So some people might consider a life well lived to be one where, you know, they do the seven thing uh, and they just go and they murder people in very creative ways, right? Uh, as an expression of their aesthetic outlook. Uh, well, you know, Mill and Kant would say that's where we have to start to impose certain kind of limitations on your conception of the good life, uh, precisely because it so impedes more or less all your victims uh, from also pursuing their conception of the good life since being hacked up means you're probably not going to be enjoying your time uh, all that much, right? Uh, but, you know, these limitations should be drawn carefully. Uh, and generally speaking, society should err on the side of liberty uh, rather than, you know, trying to impede what it is that people are going to do. Uh, now, the more fundamental question that I think you're getting at uh, relates back to how should we organize economic and social relations uh, to be conducive to people's individual flourishing? Uh, because all liberals, whether liberal socialists or libertarians, would agree that we should refrain from various forms of moral regulation uh, in many respects. Uh, but on the economic question, well, you know, there's a lot more disagreement. So obviously you have a pronounced libertarian tradition excuse me, today. Uh, that argues that central to freedom is the ability to participate in market society uh, with government minimally interfering uh, with the choices people make in that kind of context. Uh, and aligned with this is this idea that inequalities that emerge through market transaction are fundamentally justified um, as the expressions of a free society, uh, or if they're not justified in this kind of deep moral sense, at least they're economically efficient uh, and co consequently conducive to the well-being of everyone uh, in the long run. This is the argument that, for instance, Hayek made, right, where Hayek said uh, ideas of meritocracy, for example, uh, are ridiculous, right? Uh, it's very clear that in a market society, somebody who spends a lot of time producing pornography is going to get a lot richer than somebody who decides to become a nurse practitioner uh, or pediatric nurse, you know, looking after children. Uh, and no sensible person would say that a successful person producing pornography is more meritorious uh, than somebody who's a pediatric nurse. Uh, but, you know, it is the case that in the market, maybe more people want to spend money on pornography than they do on pediatric nurses. So uh, they'll make hundreds of millions of dollars and the pediatric nurse will make $60,000. Uh, and that's just what we have to accept as the price of freedom and economic efficiency. Uh, even if no sensible person would say that the pediatric nurse is less meritorious uh, than you know the person producing pornography, for example. Right. Uh, but then there's another liberal tradition that I talk about, uh, which has been a lot more comfortable with this idea of wealth redistribution, even very considerable uh, wealth redistribution in the case of liberal socialism. Uh, and this tradition, as I mentioned, begins with Mary Wollstonecraft and Thomas Paine. Uh, 
so I argue, right? Uh, where Payne starts to argue very comprehensively that, look, private property isn't some kind of natural um, institution the way that, for instance, Locke thought it was a natural institution. Uh, yeah, it's a vital one. You know, Payne wasn't uh, a socialist yet, uh, but it's certainly a social institution that people owe a debt to society to maintain, uh, and in particular, the rich owe society a debt in order to maintain it. Uh, and that debt should be used to care for uh, those who have been deprived, for example, of land uh, through the expropriation of the rich, particularly the poor, women, children, et cetera, and the elderly uh, was somebody, a group that he had uh, paid special attention to. Uh, but then with John Stuart Mill, you really start to see liberalism align a lot more closely with socialism, right? Where uh, Mill, you know, in his autobiography, famously declared that he was a socialist uh, in a qualified sense, uh, and he offered complicated thoughts on this. Uh, so Mill said, I'd cry, you know, with the greatest uh, ferocity, uh, some of the more authoritarian versions of socialism that he saw emerging in the 19th century, uh, and rightly so, right? Since, as we all know, from looking at the Soviet Union or Mao's China, uh, there are certainly forms of socialism that can be extraordinarily uh, tyrannical uh, and absolutely preclude any kind of possibility of individual flourishing. Uh, but he says, look, uh, we also need to be recognized that when socialists argue uh, against this uh, idea of meritocracy, they really have a point uh, where Mill said uh, there's this kind of idea put forward in capitalist societies uh, that the rich, again, got where they are because of their own efforts and that the poor wound up where they are uh, because they were lazy or indolent. Uh, and Mill says that's ridiculous, right? Uh, usually it's the people who work hardest in our society that are the least rewarded. You know, the per mother who's working two jobs and looking after her children, right? Uh, or the person who is taking out the garbage, you know, nobody wants to do that. It's an absolutely necessary social function. Uh, and yet, you know, we don't exactly think of garbage workers uh, as making a ton of money, right? Uh, or, you know, imagine what your life would be if, you know, we didn't have plumbers, right? You know, the world would collapse very, very quickly without them, right? Uh, and he says, so even all taken on, taken prima facie, uh, this argument that, labor should be conducive to reward uh, means our society is entirely backwards uh, since the people who work the hardest, work the longest and perform the most vital functions in our society, uh, you know, working as cashiers, working as garbage collectors, working as plumbers are the ones who are least remunerated. Uh, whereas, you know, all these speculators and financiers uh, and people who engage in, you know, rarefied activities uh, are getting away like bandits, uh, even though they contribute comparatively far less in terms of their overall utility to society. Right. Uh, and then he makes the argument that there's also something deeply problematic about this idea that we should have capitalists uh, running major corporations. Uh, the reason, he says, is that for the most part, capitalists don't really do all that much. That's particularly important. Uh, yeah, they contribute some intellectual labor uh, to the process of building a company. Uh, but that's very, very minimal compared to the people who build the factory, build the roads and actually you know, make the products uh, that are sold. Uh, so what we should do according to Mill, uh, is transition to workplace cooperatives, uh, where workers will manage major firms for themselves. Uh, they will compete with other worker-owned firms. Uh, but ultimately, right, uh, the capitalist class will be expropriated uh, because it doesn't really serve any particular social value uh, beyond, again, allowing a very small cadre of people uh, to get rich off of the efforts uh, of people who are working far harder than them. Uh, now, there are a lot of problems, I think, with this Millsian position from a theoretical and from a normative standpoint. Uh, but, you know, again, he's laying out an early case for a kind of liberal socialism that I think ultimately becomes very attractive in the hands of people like uh, John Rawls, uh, who's the figure who I identify most closely with.
There's one particular line in your book where you say, on some of these points, liberals and socialists can surprisingly find common ground with conservatives, which go beyond mere alliances of expediency. For many socialists and conservatives, the liberal emphasis on manic individualism is atomistic and a bastardization of our true nature. Again, if individualism is atomistic and it's a bastardization of true nature, uh, we again lead to two different outcomes and understanding of what it means to be equal in nature. So mm-hmm. are groups equal in nature or are individuals equal in nature? Because we can run into very major problems if we look at everything from a group standpoint vis-a-vis an individual standpoint. And this is where I think I will disagree with you the most because I definitely believe that if we look at, if we look at society as groups competing with each other, it could lead to huge problems. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in my new book, I make the argument that liberal socialists are committed to methodological collectivism and normative individualism, uh, which is a fancy way of saying, look, uh, all liberal socialists appreciate what pain appreciated, right? That individuals uh, with very, very few exceptions, right, uh, are part and parcel of a society. Uh, ultimately, Aristotle is right. You know, we are social animals, right? Uh, and the kind of institutions that are necessary for individuals or groups to flourish uh, are in large part social, right? Uh, we need roads. We need banks. You know, we need hospitals. Uh, we need certain forms of private property to exist, at least personal property from my standpoint. Uh, and none of this is possible outside of a social setting, right? Uh, and we need to recognize this uh, and theorize uh, and conceptualize it appropriately, right? Uh, but liberal socialists are also normative individualists in the sense that they say, look, even though the individual is embedded uh, in a society and society is necessary for the individual's flourishing, uh, ultimately what is of moral importance is the real human beings flourishing as an individual, right? Uh, not the flourishing of these kinds of abstract or reified entities like, say, the nation or the community or the religious group or wherever it happens to be. Uh, Because liberal socialists, you know, again, drawing on Marx here, uh, would say, look, uh, it'd be very easy for human beings to project these abstractions into a kind of spectral existence uh, and overstate their importance relative to the individuals that actually make them up, which we see all the time, right, where people will call on huge numbers of people to make sacrifices for the nation, so-called. Well, you know, the nation, you know, doesn't really exist, right? Uh, It's just a kind of imagined community that we project into being. uh, And certainly we should not be prioritizing its interests uh, over the interests of the concrete and living people that make it up, uh, not to mention future generations, right? Uh, So it's this combination, I would argue, of methodological collectivism uh, or anthropological collectivism with normative individualism that makes something like liberal socialism appealing, uh, theoretically, uh, and rigorous uh, in terms of its theoretical uh, orientation. Uh, although, again, each liberal socialist kind of cashes this out uh, in a different way. So, so let me simplify this. So we are individualists at the level of social rules and social rights where I can follow my own norms, but we are collectivists at the, at the realm of economics, or am I misunderstanding you? Well, what we are is we are descriptively uh, collectivist uh, and normatively individualist, right? Uh, And I don't think there should be anything that's all that complicated uh, or all that controversial about this, right? Uh, This idea, for instance, that any human being 
descriptively uh, is an individual, pure and simple, uh, is just an ideological fiction, right? Uh, you know, we're all born to parents uh, whom we're dependent upon early on mm -hmm. in life. Uh, if we aren't dependent upon our parents, then we're dependent upon our family uh, or in some circumstances, the state, uh, or we die, you know, quite frankly, right? Uh, you know, we end up dying. Uh, in fact, we're quite a unique animal in that respect in that we are utterly helpless and dependent uh, for about, you know, the first... 12 years of our lives or so. Uh, if you live in, you know, advanced Western states, really maybe the first 30 years uh, of your life, if you think about going through uh, school and how much money that now costs, right? Uh, so from a descriptive standpoint, we are very much dependent uh, upon the social settings that we are embedded in uh, as a precondition for our flourishing, right? Uh, and our ability to kind of grow to maturity and enjoy a good life. Uh, but accepting that we are social animals, first and foremost, and that we depend upon others for our flourishing, uh, doesn't mean that we should normatively prioritize uh, abstract entities like the collective, for example, uh, over the flesh and blood individuals who actually have interests uh, and whose lives it is actually important go well. Uh, so this idea of normative individualism uh, is distinct uh, or conceptually, even though it's aligned uh, theoretically. Uh, with um, this idea of methodological collectivism. Yeah, but then don't you think you, you're you discounting the ability of the market sometimes? That uh, is the market perfect? No, I'm, I'm not saying that. But at the end of the day, there, there has to be a thing about what markets prefer or what markets decide uh, to be valuable. Now, yes, when we look at so some occasions in life, you know, we, we look at certain professions and we feel like, why is this profession underpaid and why is the other profession paid more? Because the market decides that, right? It's it's not like the state is a Machiavellian animal trying to push the levers. Uh, mm -hmm. But so, so how can we actually get a solution for that? I mean, honestly, beyond a the point, there is no solution for that. We just have to let the chips fall where they fall, right? I'm not saying it's ideal, but I mean, the more we try to tinker with it, the more problems we create. Sure. Well, there are a few things that I want to say about that, right? Uh, first, this idea that, you know, the market just decides what people are paid uh, is itself a kind of abstract idea, right? The market, again, isn't some uh, alien or artificial power that operates over and above us, right? It is very much the kind of product uh, of collective human decisions uh, that Fair. operates uh, as a kind of mechanism to try to secure human well-being, right? Uh, but it's no more, you know, uh, independent of how human beings want to organize it than anything else is, right? Uh, so I think that's a very important point to stress because it's one that, you know, many liberals uh, have stressed for a very long period of time. Uh, you know, let's go back again to Thomas Paine. Uh, Paine, again, was one of the first people to say, it can be very easy to naturalize private property uh, and to assume quite instinctively, right? Like, look, what's mine is mine, right? Uh, you can't have it uh, without recognizing that private property, right? That most sacrosanct of rights uh, is very much a kind of artificial social right that we as a society have decided to uphold because we think it is conducive to human well-being. Uh, and, you know, Payne points out that in many circumstances it is, uh, but in all circumstances, right? Because allowing vast inequities of private property to emerge uh, when there's mass poverty in your midst isn't, you know, uh, efficient. Uh, and it certainly isn't conducive to everyone's well-being, let alone social stability. So we can tinker with that, right? Uh, or let's look at John Stuart Mill, right? John Stuart Mill, uh, 
very much, you know, uh, had a great deal of respect for markets. Uh, in fact, one of the things that he was most critical of uh, were proposals for state socialism, right? This idea that the state should just manage the economy in the way that, since the uh, Soviet Union managed the economy. Uh, what he was arguing for was fundamentally a kind of market socialism. Uh, oriented around co-ops, where he says, look, uh, absolutely what we need to have are markets to set prices uh, for various kinds of commodities, because they do that very efficiently. Uh, we also need competition, uh, which markets also do very well, because this fosters innovation, right, uh, and also cuts out weak firms. Uh, but, you know, we don't need to have markets governed by capitalists uh, or governed by capitalism, right? Uh, we could have, you know, socialist markets, right? Uh, kind of market socialism where you have different worker-owned firms, uh, like, say, the Mondragon Corps, for example, uh, that compete with one another uh, and then redistribute the profits uh, that are acquired in a more equal way uh, to their membership, right? Uh, and there are a lot of different socialists uh, who have been very friendly to these ideas, right? Think about... Um, Willy Brandt uh, and the various kind of co-determination models that were introduced in um, Germany uh, or in various parts of Northern Europe, right? They were very much predicated uh, on this kind of model. So I think that markets have a role to play uh, in the kind of socialism certainly that I would endorse or Mill would endorse. Um, but I would argue that markets don't need capitalists in any kind of fundamental way, largely because I agree with Mill uh, that of all the figures that you find in market society, uh, capitalists aren't the most vital. They're the least important, uh, and they're mostly a waste of time and space, uh, and workers and worker-managed firms can do without them. Now, one specific, uh, I have a bone to pick about this book. Everything else, but there is a very specific topic that I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. Hegel, conservative? <laughs> Come on, man. How? Yeah, you, I, I know. I appreciate that. Look, um, I got a lot of people who wrote angry letters to me about that. Um, so I think with my uh, sections on Nietzsche, right? Uh, the reason. Yeah, that, I, that was my second bone to pick. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Right. Well, look, the reason that I include them, uh, included him is without a doubt, Hegel has had a profound influence on the history of intellectual conservatism, right? Uh, and that's not a matter for debate, right? Uh, you know, all you need to do is read Karl Marx, right? Uh, and, you know, all of his polemics uh, against the right Hegelians or the conservative Hegelians or whatever it is that you want to call them, the old Hegelians, right? Uh, so Hegel's thought is invariably extraordinarily rich and systematic. Uh, and one of the things that defines it is the fact that whenever he states a position or argues for a position, uh, naturally, he will also argue for the relevancy of its opposite, right? And this is part and parcel of his dialectical method. Uh, so there is a way of reading Hegel that really foregrounds the radical inclinations uh, of his thought. Uh, and this is, of course, where left Hegelianism comes in, uh, which is still a very popular and very viable theoretical movement today. Uh, and what these figures tend to emphasize is, again, Hegel's emphasis on contingency uh, and his emphasis on the importance of history moving in the direction of greater freedom and equality for all. Uh, so on this reading, what Hegel essentially teaches us uh, is something very similar to what I just said about the market, uh, which is that at earlier and dumber levels of human history, uh, people tend to approach their social world as though it's something that is alien over and above them, right? So we will sit there and say something like, 
oh, you know, the nation is something that I am a part of and I am subordinate to the nation. Uh, and, you know, this nation is something that is eternal and grand uh, and I am just a minuscule figure within it, right? Uh, whereas a Hegelian, uh, you know, left Hegelian would say, no, 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 uh, the nation doesn't really exist, right? The nation is just a real abstraction uh, that human beings project into the world. Uh, and yeah, it might serve a certain kind of purpose or function uh, at a certain level of historical development. Uh, but at some point, it's time for you to mature as a human species uh, and recognize that your social world and the forms of collectivity that you form uh, are very, very much subject uh, to your contingent choices. Uh, and in the event that thinking of yourself in a kind of nationalist way is no longer conducive uh, to securing human freedom, uh, that it's time to, again, grow up and move past that and try to think of yourself in a different way. Right. Uh, now, that's abbreviating, you know, obviously a great deal. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of the left Hegelian position on a lot of these issues. The right Hegelian tradition, though, uh, will foreground a different aspect of Hegel's thought, uh, a more reconciliatory um, or even affirmative kind of dimension of Hegel's thought. Uh, so, again, let's look at the philosophy of right. Uh, so in the philosophy of right, uh, Hegel actually argues for a position that's very different than the one uh, that I just put forward a few seconds ago, uh, where Hegel will say, yeah, obviously it is the case that the nation is just a real abstraction, right? Uh, it doesn't exist over and above uh, the individual wills uh, of the people that make up the nation or the state, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that, some, that for some reason we should just do away with it, right? Because it is appropriate in providing the substance of the ethical life of the people. Uh, and people and someone who imagines themselves divorced uh, from this ethical life or able to radically remake uh, this ethical kind of this ethical life uh, without considering the way that this will impact others, uh, they aren't doing something that is useful. Uh, they are doing something that is demonic or evil even. Uh, so the point of philosophy from this kind of right Hegelian reading uh, isn't to offer a critique of the status quo or to reveal the contingencies of the status quo. It's instead to describe their inner necessity, the kind of sociological role they play in securing order uh, and the conditions for human flourishing for all. Uh, and philosophy on this account ends up not criticizing the world, but affirming it, right? Saying that your society as it exists uh, reflects a kind of higher necessity. Uh, and it's not for you to condemn it. It's for you to understand it and ultimately to appreciate it, right? Uh, and this, of course, has a kind of conservative function because rather than leading us to be skeptical of authority, it conciliates us to it. Uh, and this is the kind of reading of Hegel that's been very influential on a wide variety of conservatives. People like, for instance, Roger Scruton, uh, Michael Oakeshott, uh, Bradley, right? Um, or Paul Gottfried uh, in America. You know, uh, people might know Paul Gottfried uh, for coining the phrase uh, alt-right, right? But uh, before he was a proponent of the alt-right, uh, he was quite a famous uh, conservative Hegel scholar, right? Uh, and I can go on and on about this. Uh, now, which... Um, reading of Hegel is more appropriate or more accurate. Uh, I'll leave that to the Hegel scholars, right? Uh, including those, you know, who know vastly more about this than I do. The point of my book is just to emphasize that this school of right Hegelian thought uh, has been longstanding. It's not going anywhere. Uh, and certainly strikes me as a viable reading uh, of Hegel. Uh, now, personally, I'm more sympathetic, of course, to the left Hegelian reading of Hegel as the one that I draw upon more consistently uh, in my own work. Uh, but, you know, my ambitions in this book were to say no more than, look, this is an important conservative tradition. Uh, it's still got a lot of gas in its tank. Uh, and here's just some of its core convictions. Fair enough. Now, 
in the case of Nietzsche, how do you reconcile his views on Christianity or religion in general and then for, fit that into the conservative pantheon? Because well, religion Nietzsche plays a huge role. Absolutely. Well, Nietzsche is not a conservative, right? Uh, Nietzsche is an aristocratic radical, uh, as George Brandes uh, characterized. Anarchist? Him, right? Oh, not an anarchist. Not at all, right? Uh, so Nietzsche in The Will to Power actually um, repudiated this idea that he was an individualist or a believer in individual rights. Uh, in fact, he says, you know, I believe in orders of rank. So Nietzsche is an extraordinarily complex thinker. Uh, and I argue in the book that with Dostoevsky and Burke, uh, he deserves to be right at the summit uh, of the kind of right-wing pantheon, right, for reflecting a very specific view uh, of politics that's going to be hugely influential, particularly on the radical and the far right. So what Nietzsche argues, uh, certainly in his mature period, uh, is, look, in Europe in the 19th century, uh, ideas of democracy, equality for all, liberty for all, uh, were becoming ever more ubiquitous. Uh, and many people saw this as a kind of rationalizing transition, right? Uh, where we were moving away from medieval superstition uh, and Christianity uh, to a world that would be governed by the principles of utility or Kantianism, uh, or, you know, you take your pick, right? Uh, and what made Nietzsche radical uh, and extraordinarily creative uh, is he says, no, actually, uh, liberalism, socialism, and democracy aren't breaks uh, with Christianity uh, and its modes of thinking. They are just Christianity. They're secularized versions of Christianity. Uh, and the reason for this uh, is, Nietzsche says, fundamentally Christianity uh, emerged as a reaction uh, against aristocratic or master morality, uh, these kinds of outlooks that were ubiquitous uh, across the antiquarian world. Uh, and master morality uh, held that, look, uh, good or bad doesn't refer to what you and I might understood good or bad to mean, right? Uh, what it refers to are the qualities that the nobility possesses uh, and that the vulgar masses possess. Uh, so the qualities that the nobility possesses uh, and cherishes, things like pride, power, uh, vitality, uh, an ability to exercise a degree of violence over others. Those things, according to mass morality, are good uh, because they reflect the kind of health and superiority of the human specimen. Uh, whereas the kinds of qualities that are associated with the lower orders, uh, humility, compassion, pity, um, a certain degree of reverence for equality, those things, according to mass morality, are bad because they're slavish, they're low, they're base. Uh, they're not elevated the way that noble master morality is. Uh, but Nietzsche says, motivated by ressentiment and this desire for revenge against the masters, uh, the slaves were able to do something absolutely extraordinary, uh, almost unprecedented, uh, which is because they couldn't take their revenge against the masters in this world, they sublimated uh, this desire for revenge by transitioning it into a new kind of morality, the slave morality, right? Uh, that inverted the priorities of the old master morality uh, and refamed our moral outlook from one centered around good and bad uh, to one centered around good and evil, as he puts it in his book, Beyond Good and Evil, right? Uh, and what the slave morality consisted of is saying, no, 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 actually, uh, it's the poor, the meek, the subordinate, uh, what the Bible calls the wretched of the earth uh, that are actually good, right? Uh, and the qualities that we associate with them, again, compassion, pity, a yearning for equality, 
uh, a desire to kind of do well unto your neighbor, right, as he would do unto you. Those are things that are good, uh, whereas all the things that the masters cherished, those are actually evil, right? Uh, it's very telling that the great pride of, uh, sorry, the great sin of Satan uh, is pride, right? This desire to kind of create for himself, be strong for himself, uh, or to exercise order over the world for himself, right? Uh, and, you know, Nietzsche says this becomes so explosive uh, that, again, something unprecedented in human history happens, uh, which is that the slave morality predicated on resentment uh, becomes so popular and so ubiquitous that even the masters start to internalize it, uh, and they start to internalize it as feelings of guilt, uh, thinking, well, maybe I am bad, right? Maybe this pride I take in my own power uh, is something that is sinful or bad, uh, and I should reject it. Uh, and as time goes along, uh, this becomes so ubiquitous that it translates into ever-escalating demands for more equality, more compassion, more care, uh, more pity for the weak, and more pity for the lower orders. Uh, and Nietzsche says socialism, liberalism, and democracy uh, aren't breaks from this Christian slave morality. Uh, there's just this continuation uh, by another means. Uh, and this is where he gets really extraordinary, particularly in the genealogy of morals, uh, because he says that within Christianity, uh, there was this platonic drive for truth that is actually at the origin of modern science. So he actually claims that Christianity uh, is in many ways the kind of antecedent to the modern scientific method. And the reason for this, of course, is he says almost all Christian philosophers drawing upon Plato would say that it's absolutely central that we strive towards truth, right? Uh, because truth is associated with God, with goodness, with perfection. Uh, and so we need to dedicate ourselves to the truth at all costs. But Nietzsche says what ends up happening is Christian thinkers uh, draw one inference after another on their way to the truth. And then they draw what he calls their most striking inference of all, uh, which is the inference against themselves, uh, where Christian thinkers say, well, if we are going to be committed to the truth the way our morality dictates that we must be, then what about the truth of Christian doctrine itself, right? Uh, what about the morality uh, of pursuing truth? Are these things themselves actually true, right? Uh, and this leads to a more secular outlook being adopted uh, as, paradoxically, figures who are motivated by this Christian ethic uh, of pursuing truth come to question the Christian ethic in the name of truth, producing, again, this more secular scientific outlook. But even with the advent of the scientific era, according to Nietzsche, that doesn't mean that the more basic presuppositions of Christian slave morality go away. If anything, they become radicalized, right? Where uh, despite the fact that there's no metaphysical foundation uh, in our secular world uh, for arguing for human equality, according to Nietzsche at least, uh, still liberals, socialists, and Democrats put forward secularized Christian arguments uh, for equality. Uh, in fact, more radical than have ever come before. Uh, and in this respect, he says, you know, in many ways, the socialists are just further ahead uh, of liberals and Democrats because liberals in particular uh, don't really want to go all the way uh, with their basic moral convictions. You know, they will say things like, we want equality for all and freedom for all, but only so much because, you know, after that, we get a little bit leery for that. Uh, socialists uh, will just say, no, actually, equality for all and liberty for all really needs to mean equality for all and liberty for all. Uh, and we can't have any kind of compromises with that. Uh, his famous depiction uh, of socialism in uh, The Will to Power is uh, socialism is just Christianity with the residue uh, or remnants of Rousseau, for example.
Yeah, the problem is, I mean, this is just my view. You don't have to agree with me. The problem is that uh, the goal we intend to arrive discounts so many things such as human ability, uh, genetic variability, gene culture co-evolution, personal interest, demand supply issues. And there are so many variables that are there that that this socialistic ideal, I just think is unachievable. And and, uh, I know it's good to dream, but I mean, I wish... Well, but Nietzsche would absolutely agree with you, right? Uh, I mean, this is one of the things that um, makes Nietzsche so distinctive, right? So in the modern world, uh, you'll often see leftists uh, kind of march under the banner of difference, human difference in particular, right? Saying, you know, we want society to be more inclusive. We want all different groups to be respected. Uh, we want more human variability or human variation, right? Um, and all of these are kind of um, offshoots, I would say, of a liberal ethic. Uh, but Nietzsche argues for difference as well, right? Uh, in fact, he stresses that the pathos of distance between people uh, is one of uh, the most important cultural phenomena that can emerge. Uh, but Nietzsche's understanding of difference is very different from the one that um, leftists and even some liberals will adopt, uh, where he says understanding human difference uh, means appreciating the very different worth uh, of various kinds of individuals, right? Uh, some people are going to go on to build safe uh, spaceships and walk on the moon, right? Uh, And other people are going to sit there uh, and they're going to waste their lives away uh, in nihilistic, worthless kinds of activities, you know, smoking weed and watching football all day uh, or looking after their health uh, was another thing that he was very critical of where he says, you know, the last men are going to sit there and go to the gym, uh, idling away their pleasures, imagining that living to be a hundred years old uh, is somehow a worthy pursuit in life rather than doing anything with that life and time that you happen to have. Uh, and Nietzsche is really emphatic uh, and really quite dark uh, about how far he's willing to go uh, in this emphasis on difference. Uh, because again, in the same passage where he talks about the pathos of distance, uh, he says that, look, the best kind of society is then clearly an aristocratic society. Uh, not an aristocratic society, uh, the sort that you saw in the Austrian regimes of Europe, though, uh, a real aristocratic society, right, where the true human elite uh, is allowed to have almost limitless license uh, to exercise its power in the pursuit of these grand and life-affirming projects. Uh, and Nietzsche spares no pity uh, for the people uh, who are going to be below this aristocracy. In fact, he's very blunt that, look, they deserve to be slaves, right? Uh, if you aren't capable of doing anything meaningful with your life, if all you're going to do is just sit there uh, and pursue wealth for its own sake, uh, you know, Nietzsche was very critical of capitalism in this respect, uh, or all you're going to do is sit there and go to the gym five times a week uh, so you can live to be 100 drinking protein shakes, uh, then you don't deserve to have a say in how your life goes, right? Because you're not doing anything that is life-affirming with it. You deserve to be a slave, right? Uh, Put your life in the service of somebody who does have a grand project, right? Who is going to use you to do something that is worthwhile, right? Uh, And the connotations of this are obviously extraordinarily chilling, right? if you think about, you know, especially the people who are influenced uh, by this idea, right? Uh, But there's no doubt that Nietzsche was extraordinarily original uh, and audacious, uh, in addition, I would say, to being dangerously uh, reckless, right, Uh, and arguing for these kinds of positions, right? Because what makes him really distinctive in the pantheon of right-wing thought is just what you were mentioning at the outside of this conversation, right? Uh, Somebody like Joseph de Maestra, uh, thinking back to 
Christian defenses of the Ancien Regime would say, uh, look, what we need to do is go back to Christianity because Christianity, you know, uh, has this nice hierarchical worldview where God ordains everyone is going to be in their place. Uh, and really it's liberalism uh, as a kind of deviation uh, from Christianity or break with Christianity that's responsible for all the woes in our world. You got to hand it to Nietzsche for saying, uh, no, actually, liberalism is just the logical outcome of Christianity, as socialism is just the logical outcome of Christianity. Uh, so if we want to get rid of these egalitarian outlooks, uh, we need to go way back before Christianity uh, to, you know, the day where you had just Achilles murdering people because, you know, he wanted to exercise his power. Right. Uh, and that's, you know, return to a master morality, uh, albeit one that's fundamentally changed. Uh, through all the historical transitions that we've gone through. Uh, and he says, if you're not willing to go all the way, uh, you, what you just want is a little bit of social conservatism, uh, then you are have only yourself to blame uh, when people actually start taking the Christian or the Buddhist uh, message seriously uh, and saying, well, no, if I read the Bible, it says, you know, that the wretched of the earth are, know that God will be on their side uh, and that, you know, Jesus has come here to redeem the poor, the meek, the helpless, uh, that the rich man winds up in hell uh, with the poor man staring down at him saying, well, you could have helped me, but you didn't do that, right? Uh, you, know, you have only yourself to blame if you think that Christianity uh, is going to in any way inoculate people against socialism, liberalism, and democracy, rather than eventually convincing them uh, that this is the only way to actually instantiate uh, Christian principles properly. Yeah, Nietzsche was an acquired taste. Very interesting philosopher. Basically, his Fair. message at the end of all of you suck. That's what he used to. That's what his message for humanity was. All of you suck. That's that's the that's the the sum total of the yeah, Nietzsche philosophy. It just ends up with you suck. All of you, you piece, useless, piece, pathetic pieces of shit. What are you guys doing? You worthless lives. It's it's it's, it's interesting. Oh, absolutely right. And I mean. <laughs> I, I don't mean to get autobiographical here. And look, I am not I'm not doing an ad hominem here, right? But Nietzsche himself was apparently, you know, I've read a lot of uh, stuff about his biography. He was a tough guy to hang out with, man, apparently. Like people would he had friends who'd say, you know, he acted like an aristocrat, right? Like apparently he would just be sitting there on the couch and he would get his friends to like type out his thoughts for them. Uh, for him, right? Uh, While well, he would just sit there and be like, yeah, you know, like, I'm a very, very smart guy. You know, here's my thought about this. Make sure you write that down. And invariably, they would end up leaving him. And then he would sit there and be like, oh, you know, I'm a very lonely guy. You know, the truly great person is always alone. And some of his friends would be like, no, man, I just fucking was hanging out with you. And all you would make me do is just write down your thoughts. You know, I didn't want to fucking have to deal with that no more. <laughs> you know, yeah, so. yeah, basically, like I said, he was an acquired taste. So, OK, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions from the live viewers and then we'll wrap it up. Sure. So somebody has asked, would a strong social safety net and equality of educational opportunities not be enough to have a stable society where the equality debate then becomes almost irrelevant? That's the first question. I certainly think that would be preferable. Right. Look, I've made no bones about the fact that I think the Nordic social democracies uh, are the highest forms of human society that have been achieved thus far, uh, precisely because there are inequalities that exist within them. Uh, but again, from my kind of Rawlsian standpoint, for the most part, those are conducive to the benefit of the least well off. Right. Uh, so I would argue that there's absolutely nothing wrong with moving in that direction. Uh, I would just claim that there are there's further that we can go down that route uh, in securing the well-being of the least well-off and indeed, you know, everyone in society. Um, but, you know, we shouldn't let the perfect get in the way of the good. Uh, and if you have a nice social democratic party in your country that you could vote for, then by all means, I would say vote for it. 
Yeah. So, okay. The next question is, isn't the problem in America, lack of government not being able to redistribute fund flows rather than any fundamental problem with capitalism itself? Well, I would argue no, right? Uh, so there's a few things that I can say about this. Uh, and our conversation has been very wide ranging. But let's just take uh, two problems uh, as an example, right? Uh, so many people have complained about the kind of democratic backsliding and shift into a more kind of chaotic um, political system that's emerged in the United States in recent years. Uh, and there are a lot of different debates about what has anticipated uh, and catalyzed this. Uh, but one that most political scientists are agreed upon is the fact that the population generally is deeply, deeply unhappy uh, with the contemporary elite that is governing the country. Uh, and with good reason, right? So uh, Eatwell and Goodwin, uh, who are two conservative political scientists in the United Kingdom, uh, evaluated people's opinions uh, and why they turned to right-wing populism and other kinds of populism. Uh, and they found that one of the major reasons uh, why figures from Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump were popular uh, was because people in the United Kingdom and the United States felt that political elites uh, were not beholden to the interests of ordinary people. Uh, they were beholden to the interests of economic elites, you know, very, very powerful um, economic and corporate actors. Uh, and then, you know, a wide variety of political scientists and economists, uh, ranging from Martin Jillens to Thomas Piketty, uh, found that people are right to feel this way, right? Because actually ordinary citizens in the United States and the United Kingdom have very little impact on public policy relative to the very wealthy, right? Uh, in fact, you know, um, it's many ways more appropriate to characterize America uh, as a plutocracy rather than a democracy. Because uh, if you take Martin Gillen's research uh, seriously, for example, uh, ordinary citizens have almost no say uh, in what kind of laws or public policies are passed. Uh, whereas if you're wealthy or from a large corporation, you have a very good chance uh, of seeing your policy preferences enacted into law. Uh, and this naturally generates a great deal of political instability and unhappiness because people feel, I think quite rightly, that their government should work at the very least for the majority, right? Uh, not work for the interests of people who already happen to have a lot. So there's a serious price to be paid in terms of political and institutional stability um, that results from the inequities that emerge under neoliberal capitalism. Right? Uh, and then the second major problem that I bring up uh, would, of course, be uh, the extraordinarily negative impact uh, that our economic activity is having on the environment, right, uh, or has had on the environment for several centuries now. Uh, and it is extremely telling that virtually every major political actor in the world will at least now gesture to the importance of climate change and the negative impact that climate change could have, not just in the Western world, but particularly on the global South, uh, and yet very little action relative to what scientists are recommending uh, has been undertaken to significantly combat this. Uh, and again, it's not a surprise that this is occurring because people have consistently, uh, sorry, actors have consistently emphasized how this would be damaging to the economy uh, if we took two aggressive steps to try to ameliorate the conditions that lead to climate change. Uh, and there is no divorcing that from this capitalist need uh, to not just propel economic growth, but to acquire. Uh, and I would argue that a transition to a more humane kind of economic system uh, that redistributed the necessities of life more equally uh, while reining in uh, this impulse for acquisition uh, at certain kind of high levels uh, would be a big step forward uh, in securing environmental sustainability for the future. Uh, so there are many more examples I can give of where capitalism hasn't been working very well in the United States or the United Kingdom, which are the two examples that uh, I was drawing upon. Uh, but I'll just leave it there because otherwise we'll be here. We'll be here all the time. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, we we discussed that. Most Indians will disagree with you. They're like, we've tried socialism till 1990s. Uh, F that. We're happy in a capitalist society. Most Indians will not buy this, what you're saying. But uh, but uh, it's always a pleasure speaking with you, man. I love reading you. I, I and what I like, I've always said, what I appreciate about you is your your hard work and your ability to steal, man. Which is which is a rare commodity these days. Most people don't know how to steal man. Uh, it, most internet discourses on the straw manning level. So congratulations on your book and looking forward to, you know, talking to you again about your next book. Thanks a lot, man. Always great to talk to you. All right, guys, we'll wrap it up. But before I wrap it up, I want to read one last excerpt from Matt's book. It is titled "What Makes Someone Far Right." So just going to read two paragraphs. The right has long had an often self-described reputation for preferring moderation over radicality, improvement over revolution, and restraint over bellicosity. In the United States, where liberalism is so ingrained into the cultural fabrics that, fabric that conservatives can even claim to be conserving the principles of classical liberalism, these sentiments often express themselves in the language of a minimal or, quote, small state which can give the political right an anti-authoritarian gloss, which sits uncomfortably with many of its policy preferences. Indeed, even some popular conservative authors have even so internalized this conviction that they can parrot a far progressive-sounding language. Dave Rubin no doubt speaks for millions of partisans when he claims the right as, quote, Exponentially more tolerant, way more respective towards, uh, respectful towards individuals, way more supportive of individual thought, way more interested in diversity, way more progressive, way more inclusive, and honestly, just a way more fun side. The right is a toga party with a bunch of people drinking and smoking and sharing uh, uh, different and often com competing ideas. These kinds of tropes can make the mere existence of the far right seem like a paradox to the faithful and more conventional conservatives like Jonah Goldberg or Thomas Sowell have consequently tried to explain the far right, particularly fascism, away by reading it as essentially just another form of progressive radicalism in a very good disguise. Now you guys can disagree with Matt, agree with Matt, I don't care which side of the aisle, I, but I would always encourage you guys to read him. If you want to understand theory in particular, whether it's left-wing theory or right-wing theory from a Western perspective, uh, this is the caveat. If you are interested in understanding Western thought, Western intellectual traditions, I would highly recommend not only just buy his books, go and uh, I, I've kept the link of his website also in the description of the podcast. Go check his articles out too. Buy his books, buy this book. <clears throat> the link to buy the book is in the description of the podcast. Listen, I always enjoy reading him. I'm going to say that again. I I wish him nothing but uh, success. I think these kinds of discussions are very important in our society. The reason I try to do these discussions on the podcast, probably the only Indian who does all these kinds of discussions, is that I love ideas. I, li I, I like being challenged. I, I think Matt is someone who always challenges me, which is why I love talking to him. So I'll leave you guys at that. But if you can, do support the Charbuk podcast. Become a member on YouTube, Patreon, Fanmo, wherever you are. Buy the merch. Or just like, subscribe, leave a comment. If you're an audio listener, just leave a rating. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye.